So if you're that satisfied with the decision to where you're like, uh, you know, when Harry met Sally, that scene where she says, I'll have what she's having, that's actually the, the um, environment that exists among pre-arrangers. They want to tell people what they, what they did and that others should do it as well. And the, the other reason they do it, they say, is because I have relieved my family of a financial burden. I have relieved my family of an emotional burden. And I believe that it was the right thing to do. And for me, for the rest of my life, I'll have that right thing done. This is not me making it up. This is hundreds of thousands of people who have prearranged and funded a funeral telling us this is how they feel. On today's episode, I talk with Dean Lambert from The Love Always Project about prearranging your own funeral. Hello, and welcome to Dying Kindness the podcast for people who are going to die someday. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday. Spoiler alert, you will too. So let's all do what we can to make key decisions now in order to be kinder to the people we'll leave behind. That's a dying kindness. If you've ever had to plan someone's funeral, you know that a big topic of conversation is about what the deceased would have wanted. Wouldn't it be nice to know that for sure? My guest today, Dean Lambert, is going to talk about the benefits of arranging your funeral in advance. We're also going to touch on options for funding. Dean is a co-founder of Love Always Project. They're on a mission to educate and empower everyone to embrace funeral planning as an extension of a life well-lived and a final gift to a family well-loved. Before we get into this, a couple of things you need to know. We recorded this back in September, shortly after Queen Elizabeth died. I mention this because Dean references it a few times. Also, this is a good follow-up for the promise I made a few episodes back about what we can learn from the Queen's death. And a content warning. Dean's personal story includes talking about suicide, particularly among former military. If you're not up for listening to that, but still want information about prearranging funerals, I suggest going directly to the Love Always Project. They have an ever-expanding set of resources there. I'll include a link in the show notes. Speaking of the Love Always Project, if you go there, you might notice that it's a project of the Homesteaders Life Company. Homesteaders is the company that Dean works for full-time, and Homesteaders is helping with funding, but Love Always is an independent nonprofit. That may or may not matter to you, but I wanted to note it. And last note, this podcast is listener-supported. If you like what I'm doing, if you get value from it, and you want to give back, Go to dyingkindness.com slash support. Okay, I think I'm done with the preamble. Here's my interview with Dean Lambert. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And I'm uh, very happy to be able to talk about our little project. I'm always curious how someone comes to choose a career talking about funerals. And Dean's story is one of the most surprising I've ever heard. Because his father was in the military, Dean's family moved 17 times before he was 18. He craved having a hometown and being part of a community. A TV show gave him the idea of achieving this by becoming a doctor. Depending on the age of your listeners, there was a show called Northern Exposure where a young man went to med school and the town paid for it. And Part of what he had to do to pay back was to go back to that town. At college, however, he realized there was more to math and science than he wanted to deal with, and he decided not to go to med school. A friend convinced him instead to go into broadcasting. He discovered that he had a knack for storytelling and for commercial writing. He worked a few years in radio and then went into business with a friend. 
I decided with a fraternity brother to start a little ad agency. And a couple of years after we started, we got a call from a funeral home who said, hey, we heard you've been doing some really cool things in advertising and public relations, and we need to be able to tell our story in a way that's not icky and that makes people understand we're just people and we want to, you know, we want to serve folks at the worst times of their lives, you know, and make it as, as a good of an experience as we possibly can. They didn't use that language, but that was the essence. Advertising is an unusual path into death work, but Dean got hooked. I absolutely fell in love with the business, the funeral business. It had everything I ever wanted. You're an important member of the community if you do a good job. You're ministering and caring for people. I just felt like it was something I could do and wanted to do. He did such a great job that the owner of that funeral home had a vision of Dean helping change the public's relationship with funeral homes everywhere. He started recommending Dean to his colleagues, and word spread. So within a couple, three years, we were working with, um, you know, a couple, 300 funeral homes. And I just began to really get into the business and really want to be a change maker. Dean was so good at this that in 1998, he was approached by a company that wanted to expand his message to thousands of funeral homes. This company, Homesteaders, supports prearranged funerals. And so I felt that was a logical step up for me to continue my mission, to help tell the story about what funeral professionals do, how important memorialization and celebration of life is. You might think that this was just a smart business move, but when he's talking about prearranging funerals, it's clear Dean is driven by a sense of mission, drawn from personal experience. Because I'd seen too many people planning funerals at the time of need, and A, being lost and not being able to make the decisions that they would have made if they weren't under pressure, you know, not that the funeral director pressures them, although sometimes it happens, but, um, you know, your mind is mush when you yeah. have experienced the death of somebody close and you have the best of intentions, but, you know, you're just, you don't have it. You, you can't make those decisions. The other thing is, is that I, I noticed being in arrangement sessions when uh, the person, uh, let's say there are three children. Uh, dad dies, mom is there, the, the, the one child that stayed close to home who was involved in the family, involved in dad's passing, helping mom, the two kids from out of town come back in town, and maybe they have talked about it. Well, the two kids out of town are absolutely against everything that the people at home want to do. Well, dad would never want that. Dad didn't tell you that. Dad, all of a sudden there's conflict, and you don't need conflict, <laughs> trust me, at the time of a death. I've seen families never speak to each other again because they didn't think or plan ahead. And um, that has fueled my, uh, my passion for the Love Always Project and to make sure that folks know that they can and should talk about um, end of life, but not necessarily talk about death and dying. Right. There's, a, there's, there's a way to do it so that you're not going up to mom or dad and saying, hey, mom, dad, I'm 55 years old and you're 75 years old and I need to know what you want to be done when you're dead, you know? Because what you're going to get is, you know, oh, just, you know, put me in a cardboard box type of thing. Right. It's a deflection. So that's why I'm passionate about it. I think it's the right thing to do. Over the years, we've done some research and it's confirmed that that the people that do do it, uh, do plan ahead, do talk about it in advance. They believe it's the right thing to do. And so that's why I want to spread the word. And I want to get people having conversations so that they're not caught off guard like I've been and so many others have. Absolutely. There's so much in what you just shared, and I just want to break it down a little bit and slow okay. down like the little pieces because I don't want to sure. miss anything because I think it's really, really important. Well, first of all, I think it's amazing and kind of hilarious that you came to this through advertising. Like yeah. we all know 
death has a marketing problem. That's for dang sure. You know, nobody wants to talk about it. So what is it that you are able to bring forward to help people be more comfortable talking to different funeral homes or to just say like, you know, oh, this is something that's really important. Like how, how are you reframing that conversation? What have you found actually works for um, people to see this in a different way? Well, I guess the first thing I would say is uh, there have been several significant deaths of people in the public domain. Queen Elizabeth II. Um, you know, I'm a big music fan, and one that hit me really hard was Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters. And I just watched their whole concert overnight. It was like four hours long. And it yeah. was just amazing. Bob Saget recently died. I mean, I'm, I'm leaving out some very significant people uh, and, and public figures. Like him or not, it begins conversations about death and dying. It begins subconscious thought about death and dying. If your mom happened to resemble Queen Elizabeth or any older 90-year-old woman you think of your mom, it's happening already. People are already thinking about end of life and mortality. Um, Unfortunately, with the school shootings, even young people are thinking about end of life. My son died by suicide at 24 years old. You know, I mean, and it didn't just happen one day, I'm going to do this, right? There were things that made him think, and in his case, he was a Marine, and you've heard about the 22 a day, the veterans that uh, take their lives, you know, on a, it's fortunately going down, but the fact is it happens. These still are young too high. people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, still too high. But, you know, what happens is, is that um, after my son saw on Facebook that a, a very good friend of his who was in boot camp with him, uh, the month before my son took his own life. Uh, took his life. And of course, the encouraging, the outpouring of love and affection and everything that happens on Facebook around that death, anybody who's on the precipice would think, wow, what a way to go out. People people would love me forever and I wouldn't have, ever have a problem in the world. It almost encourages folks to think about, almost like, you know, um, repeat crimes, you know, where people are, quote, inspired by these things. And so, um, that's it's out there is i guess the cathartic moment is people are thinking and talking about end of life they can't help it because it's out there video games you name it and so what we're trying to do with the love always project is to help people think about it in terms that are maybe this is a terrible choice of words in a more healthy kind of way to turn that energy and those thoughts into something that's positive and productive to talk amongst their friends instead of just, you know, responding like knee jerk on Facebook or whatever to say you're, you know, like in, in the Jewish uh, tradition, we say, may their memory always be a blessing. You know, it's a very simple thing to say. It's very heartfelt. It's, it's rooted in ancient, you know, texts. But yet, you know, thinking good thoughts, sharing our, you know, whatever, that's about all people can do. And it's just a tiny pinpoint of what they're actually feeling and thinking. Mm-hmm. That is unorganized and sometimes is not easy for them to understand how to make sense of it. And they'll be in a funk for a few days and it affects their work and their relationships and things like that. That's why it's important to, um, when, when you have the stimulation, to be able to think in an orderly fashion about how it makes you feel, to know that there's people you can talk to out there. And if there's not people, then maybe you can go out to the lovealwaysproject.org and join a forum and get your thoughts out. And um, do it in a way that allows you to delete (laughs) and rewrite it and then post it and then read it and say, wow, you know, so that's what we're trying to do is to give people a way to have uh, um, to express their feelings 
and to ask questions and most of all to understand they're not alone. You've referenced it a couple of times, and so I want to have you spend a little time telling me about the Love Always Project and what people can find when they go there and what it is that you all are trying to achieve. Sure. Okay, so the first thing you'll, um, you'll notice uh, is that uh, the, um, the, the underwriting for the Love Always Project is a, is a company called Homesteaders Life Company, and that's, that's a company I work, work for full-time. <laughs> this is a project I'm doing for them. And our CEO and I and, and the board of the Love Always Foundation, which we've created, um, it, it's separate from the company. Okay. And this is not a way for us to generate leads or sell anything or whatever. That's the promise that I got that it's truly altruistic. We want people who join the Love Always Project to feel like they have a purpose. We want this to be important to the consumer. Not only do I get something out of it as a consumer, as somebody who can, you know, type and delete and type and post and learn from others, but also um, it's something that I belong to that's that has a purpose and that's doing good things for others. And I don't ever have to worry about somebody calling on me and selling me something. So that's the number one thing. We have a lot of blog material that's been created by experts. We have uh, some grief support resources, which we're going to actually expand through the association with another website called forgrief.com. We uh, have the forum, which I believe is the key function of the website. And then we also have all of our social media. I won't go into it, but there's a lot of content out there that's relevant to end of life that gets people scratching their head and going, hmm, you know, that's interesting. In addition to original content. So way down the road, probably after I'm retired, I'm hoping that we have all of the media covered and that we're able to inspire others to tell their stories or to create stories that can help people who are um, struggling with, you know, end of life issues. Not just folks that have people that have uh, uh, terminal diseases or some sort of a disability or suicide, you know, is in their life, but um, people who have who are inspired by seeing how how uh, somebody's been paid tribute to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like we're about to see with Queen Elizabeth. So, so it sounds like the Love Always Project. You're trying to create a place platform. where people can go and yeah, talk to each other, find other people, especially. And I feel like it's really important, especially because people often don't know anyone who is open to talking about it in their immediate circles, or it also sounds like a really great place to practice how to have these conversations and get feedback on, you know, if you want to raise it with resistant relatives or whatever, you know, it sounds like a a really great opportunity for people to to do all of that. Without a doubt, it is a, it's a proving ground for folks. And if nothing else, I mean, you can voyeuristically just watch the posts, which we're just starting to really see happen. I think part of it is awareness and part of it is getting people to believe, like you said, it's okay to go to a proving ground and and practice a little bit um, because there are a lot of folks out there that should be having the conversation. I totally agree. And just so it's clear for everybody listening if you plan your funeral, it doesn't actually accelerate it's happening. Just, right. you know, that's a myth. It's yeah. like a weird belief, but no, people actually have that in the back of their minds, some kind of like weird superstition thing. So let's go to actually talking about planning ahead for a funeral. Sure. So break down for me, like, what does that even mean? What can you plan ahead? Like, what, what are you talking about when you say that? You know, it'd be interesting if we were doing um, like a radio call-in show. It would be a great question to ask people and say, all right, in one sentence, what does funeral planning mean to you? 
And you, and I would say based on our research and my, you know, 30 years of experience working with funeral homes and families that have been in their orbit, um, nothing or I don't know would probably pop up a lot, (laughs) especially depending on, you know, what age you are. On the other hand, you could be a very younger, young person in your thirties and have lost, you know, um, had a lot of loss in your life, which would be very unfortunate. And it would mean something profound and possibly very painful to them. Part of the pain of, of, of that would be that, um, death is all, is often a surprise. Even if somebody has a, uh, terminal illness diagnosis, six months, six years, 16 years, when the death happens, it's still alarmingly surprising because there's something in the back of your head that says it's not going to happen. So planning a funeral, if you, um, uh, let's say you're my age, I'm almost 60. My dad's 82 and he was in the military. And we have been talking about this because my mom passed away in 1987. She had lung cancer. So I told him, I said, I know you want to be buried at Arlington. Okay. So that's number one. A lot of people think about when I I just told my kids where I want to be buried. Okay. That's a great start. I don't want to disparage anybody who has purchased cemetery property and communicated to their kids where they wanted to be buried. All right. But that still doesn't solve the problem for the survivor because it's not written down. So if you don't write it down and you don't put it in a safe deposit box or put it in your trust or go to a funeral home or when you uh, go into long-term care, make sure these things are written down. So, so thinking about where you want to be buried and, um, or cremated or whatever it is, that's important. And communicating it is important, but writing it down is very important. And you don't need somebody with you to do it. You just need a place to put it so people can discover it. So step one is you need to tell people what you want done with your body. And step two is that you need to write it down and put it somewhere that people can find easily when you die. Dean also suggests going through the pre-planning process together with a funeral director because they're going to ask you all kinds of questions that might never have occurred to you. When you're talking to the funeral director, they're going to ask you all these questions about how you want to be remembered, who's going to be in charge, whether it's one person or several. And then you'll start talking about, you know, what you prefer in terms of disposition. Do you prefer cremation? Do you prefer to be embalmed? Do you prefer to have your cremated remains buried? Or do you want to uh, scatter them somewhere? Do you want them to be parsed out to family members? Because there's products to help you do that. Cremation urns and companion urns. So all of the things for all of your listeners out there who have ever been involved in funeral planning, probably not many of them, gratefully, those are the questions that are asked and answered. It's, it goes all the way from how you want to be remembered and what you want people to think and say to actually picking out the merchandise. Dean then went further, talking about not just pre-planning, but also funding your funeral in advance. This is basically step three, and he says that the people he's seen do this are so happy that they did. On other episodes of this podcast, we've covered making these decisions, talking with your people, and writing it down. Now... You can stop there and that's fine. But the people that prearrange and fund their funerals report 100% satisfaction with the decision to do that. And the reasons why they say they do this, this is based on our 10 years of tracking studies. Every other year we ask people who have prearranged and funded all kinds of questions. But not only are they 100% satisfied, but within a month of doing it, 42% have already recommended somebody else to do it. Mm. Any business person would love to have high satisfaction 
high recommendation. And another 30% after that said they planned on telling somebody else. So if you're that satisfied with a decision to where you're like, uh, you know, when Harry met Sally, that scene where she says, I'll have what she's having, that's actually the, the um, environment that exists among pre-arrangers. They want to tell people what they, what, they, what they did and that others should do it as well. And the, the other reason they do it, they say, is because I have relieved my family of a financial burden. I have relieved my family of an emotional burden. And I believe that it was the right thing to do. And for me, for the rest of my life, I'll have that right thing done. This is not me making it up. This is hundreds of thousands of people who have prearranged and funded a funeral telling us this is how they feel. That is truly amazing. That is mm -hmm. amazing. Yeah. And I love that you're coming to this also with data. It's not just like, I think that it's a good idea or it worked for me personally, but you're talking hundreds of thousands of people who have actually gone through the process and then actually referred other people to right. do it, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've mentioned now the funding, pre-funding. Mm -hmm. And so talk to me a little bit about that process. Like, right. you know, I, one of the things that comes up when I talk to people about this is the idea of like, I'm one of those people who have had people die throughout my entire life at all different ages from especially a lot in their teens, twenties and thirties. And, um, I know people in that age group expect to move around a lot and go mm -hmm. from one place to another. And so there's some resistance to doing a prearrangement that's going to like lock you into a location. You right. know, you maybe don't know what your finances are going to look like in the future, you know? So what kinds of ways can we plan that also accommodates the fact that you're planning early? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked because you're right. A lot of people are afraid that, you know, I don't know exactly where I'm going to be. I don't know where my kids are going to be. My two daughters live on the East Coast. I live in Iowa. And as soon as um, baby number one, grandchild number one, becomes into being, my wife, who's a Midwesterner, is going to be want to be right on top of them. <laughs> so <laughs> hard enough to get her to move from Nebraska to Iowa, much less to the East Coast. But anyway, it's a it's a fair and it's a valid question. And I have to be a little careful here because I I don't want to um, talk too much about um, any one kind of funding. But I can talk to you about the kind of funding that I'm most familiar with. There are trusts that funeral director associations have where you can place money in a trust. Um, and then there's, um, you know, a lot of people can buy regular life insurance and they tell their families, I have plenty of life insurance. The kind of funding I'm most familiar with, and I have to be careful because there's regulatory concerns too, too about the way I, I can talk about this. Dean explained to me that he's being careful not to sound like he's advocating one type of financing over another. As you listen to the following, keep in mind that there are several financing options. I encourage you to explore on your own. Talk with a funeral director or an estate lawyer or a financial advisor about what might be best for your individual situation and needs. Now, back to Dean. First, we spoke about what's known as final expense insurance which is purchased separately through an insurance broker outside of a funeral home. What you're doing there is you're purchasing a five or a 10 or $15,000 policy, and you're intending it for it to pay for your funeral costs. The challenge there is if you are smart and you do it early enough, let's say you're 60, 65, and you live another 20 years, then all you get is that five or $10,000 benefit. That may or may not cover everything everybody wants to do. You know, your grown son may want to say, we're cremating dad and we're making diamonds out of his cremated remains. 
they're real diamonds. <laughs> they cost a lot of money. They're just, you know, manufactured. Still carbon under pressure, still precious, right? And even more so because it's a family member. So, um, so that's not a, a terrible way to go. And also wherever you go, you know, you can use it. It's very, very portable, whatever funeral home you pick um, or not. Um, my funeral professionals will hate that I said that, but it happens, right? <laughs> we then talked about doing the prearranging through a funeral home. Something I didn't know is that you can work with a funeral director to be sure you've covered everything and still have a plan that is portable if, for instance, you move to another state. The type of product that I'm most familiar with is one where the funeral director, and in most states, uh, many states, uh, it's required to, um, to do this, is where they, quote, guarantee the price of the funeral. And so the family never has to pay more than the than what you did than when you planted it the, the early when you prearranged it. Okay, and what happens is is that the funeral director once you pick everything out, they agree that that the price today, let's say it's seven thousand dollars, that they will accept whatever the insurance benefit is to pay for the funeral, no matter what the future cost of the funeral is, and the family doesn't have to pay anything else unless they you know add stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And Here's the thing with the type of product I'm describing, the person owns the policy. So it's transferable. They can go from Michigan to Florida and all they have to do is find a funeral home that, that will accept that prearrangement contract. They'll rewrite the contract. Now, I don't know any funeral director who wouldn't accept that because they want to do the funeral. They know that when they help a family and if they do a great job, that that family will tell others that's my funeral home. So it's worth it for them, even if they have to take a little less profit or they lose a little bit on it. You may have read news in the past about unethical funeral directors who have stolen money from funds that were supposed to be set aside for prearrangements. Or maybe you've heard about how many funeral homes are closing or getting bought up by large corporations and venture capitalists. Those stories are real and they are unnerving. However, I invite you to keep two things in mind. First, what makes those stories newsworthy is that they're unusual. Many funeral homes take pride in caring for their families and for their communities. All of us, including myself, need to be careful about painting the entire funeral industry with the same judgmental brush. Second, and this is a big one, Dean is talking about setting up a policy that you would own, not the funeral home. That's the key that makes it portable meaning that you could apply it to a funeral through a home that's different than the one that you did the planning with, even one in another state. Before you sign anything or give anybody any money, you should be clear on who owns the policies and what the restrictions are. If this sounds confusing, well, that's just one more reason to do all of this when your mind is clear and not clouded by grief or stress or chemo or whatever. So yes, there have been some scary stories in the news. But Dean reminds us that most funeral directors are invested in their communities. Funeral directors are people just like you and me. They live, they love, they go watch their kids play baseball and softball and, and soccer and everything else. They worship. They just happen to be people that do something that is something that nobody else wants to and few of us can do. Right. And there are some bad apples, just like, you know, every other business. But um, these are people who have dedicated their life to, to service. And even, you know, clergy people um, 
they don't often get into some of the weirdest, most difficult positions that a funeral directed what director would have to to get into. And 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 the, certainly the ones that helped me when my son died by suicide um, had a very difficult, from what I saw, um, job that they had to do. And I thank thank goodness there's people like that out there. And anybody who is real, they're, we're looking for good people in the funeral business, second careers, former police officers, former clergy, former teachers. This is a wonderful, wonderful second career. And I want to bring forward that conversation you just referenced about your son and the conversations you had with the funeral directors at the time, because you were already doing this work to a certain, mm -hmm. yep. certain level. And yep. yet... I I've heard on you know some of your other interviews that it was still valuable for you to talk to a funeral director. So like like bring bring that to life a little bit for Absolutely. me. Like let tell me about what what you experienced, even though you know about this. Like you still you still benefited from talking to a funeral director. Well, here's the thing: if if you don't believe uh, uh, if you don't if I haven't resonated with you on anything else I've said, just take my personal experience to heart, okay? Uh, my son was in the Marines. He was the funniest kid in the world. Um, he, everybody relied on him for, you know, um, for their problems with their girlfriends or their lives or whatever. Adam was the guy everybody went to and he was hilarious and everything else. Um, uh, on, uh, we went out on July 4th after he got out of the military and, um, carefully avoiding lots of, uh, fireworks and stuff, but we had a wonderful night. And um, Adam had been struggling with finding his way back, like so many veterans do. They just can't get acclimated. There's not there. There are getting their better programs, but they're still not helping people after military, especially if they've been in combat. And um, you know, uh, just for those folks who who have are, are in this type of crisis, um, for me, hindsight is twenty twenty. I should have known something because he was in a really good mood. He said, I love you, dad, you know, the night uh, that I got annoyed with him because he knew the dialogue to every comedy movie and he would say it while you're trying to watch it. And finally, I was just had it, had enough. And I said, all right, I'm out of here. I'm go going good night. And so I started walking down the hall and he said, night, dad, love you. Never said that. He's never said that. But I thought he was being snarky and whatever. I wish I would have turned around and stared him down for a second. I might have seen something. OK, at any rate. Um, I ride with the Patriot Guard riders on the motorcycle. We do military funeral escorts. Uh, organization's been around 15 years. And so um, I inherently knew uh, the probably the first or second call I made when discovering Adam um, was to my ride captain and said, hey, uh, you guys ride for us. Adam passed away. And Adam had ridden in a couple missions as well. And, um, and they were of course very broken up about it and said, absolutely. We'll be right there. The second thing is, is that, um, in my travels with consulting with funeral homes, uh, there are a couple manufacturers uh, that make these caissons that are towed behind Harley Davidson trikes. I'm going to interrupt this story a moment because that word caisson was unfamiliar to me. So I'm guessing you might not know it either. It's spelled C-A-I-S-S-O-N, caisson. It's basically a glassed-in case on wheels that carries the casket. In Victorian times, it was drawn by horses. If you've seen photos of Lincoln's funeral as his body was taken from city to city, his casket was carried in some very elaborate caissons. Here, Dean is talking about a modern caisson that is designed to be pulled by a motorcycle, a Harley-Davidson trike. 
Uh, there are a couple manufacturers uh, that make these caissons that are towed behind Harley Davidson trikes. I don't know if you've ever seen one or if anybody's ever seen one where they put the the casket in there and they, mm. they use it in the procession. It is an amazing thing to see. And so I had um, convinced several funeral homes that they should invest in a caisson for public service officials, police, fire, EMS, doctors, nurses, uh, and you know veterans. And so it's a sight to see, and it's something that I was very passionate about and and that consumers are passionate about when they know that their funeral home has that. So Adam passed away. The next day we went to the funeral home. We started talking to my friend, John, uh, who is the a manager at the funeral home. And he was very good at allowing Jill and I to tell our stories and things like that while he was with his finger following down his checklist. This guy's been a funeral director for 40 years, and he knows the importance of check, check, check because he does not want to miss a question because he knows that if he misses a question, people don't know what they don't know in these situations. Both my wife and I work in this business and we were sitting there with the funeral director and John was going through his thing. And the minute he got to the part with the transportation, the coaches or hearses, as people say, flower cars, things like that. And then he got to the picture of their Harley hearse. And he says, and of course, you know, we have the Harley hearse. I'm, I'm you know, I don't want to assume anything. And and that's the first time in the 24 hours or 36 hours since my son died that it became real to me. And here's why, ladies and gentlemen, I would have completely forgotten the Harley hearse. Hmm. That was the realization for me that my son was gone. I'm sitting by, even after I found him by the riverside and came out, you know, after the sheriffs were there and I had to go out and get my wife and I still was going through crisis mode. You know, I had to, I had to make sure she was okay and no, you can't see him and all that, you know, then when you get a chance to sit down and you're going through it step by step by step, as painful as it is, it's also, you know, there's a release until they get to something like this. Well, we've got it together. We've been working in funerals for 30 or 15 years in my wife's case. And yet I realized that I called my Patriot Guard guy the, the half hour after I found Adam dead. And when we got to planning the funeral, I would have forgotten something that I talk about all the time. And ladies and gentlemen, you get one shot at this. One shot, which is a mm -hmm. terrible word to use. Um, and that's the most important reason why you should be talking to your family about your end of life wishes and what you want, because you are not in the right mind. Dean's story illustrates something that I talk about a lot, that grief and shock affect our ability to think. Even someone who has been working with the funeral industry for 30 years, like Dean, can find it hard to remember details and think through everything that's needed when his mind is clouded by grief. As he says, you only get one chance to create someone's funeral. We should be thoughtful about it. One other quick story, when my father-in-law passed away, uh, the kids got along great. They planned the funeral, everything. Jill's, my wife's mom got home and she was looking at things and she looked at the bill, at the, the write-up for the funeral. And she told me and my wife, wow, I didn't realize we spent that much. I gosh, you know, but you know what? We have the money and he deserves it. They picked like one of the most expensive caskets and had a lunch and everything else. And it, it wasn't about the money. It was about her coming to the realization that we, she was emotionally swept up and she is not an emotional person. This woman grew up as a farm person and she was a, you know, solid 
all with it person. But when when her husband died, when my father in law died, she realized she she just kind of got swept up. And I know the funeral director. He did not go down the list and show them the most expensive things. I can tell you that he was is a highly respected guy. They just got together and through the group picked it out. And you know she had the money. She didn't have buyer's remorse. She just didn't realize, folks. This is why it's important to do it in advance, even if you don't pay for it in advance. Try and have that vision of how you want to, how you want your send off to go. I do want to underscore what you were talking about with the fact that our brains are complete mush, you know, when we're grieving, especially if it's an unexpected death or, you know, but even when it's not an unexpected death, even when it's something that, you know, is coming, it's still right. in that moment, your brain is just, you know, a mess. And so I do, I, I fully, fully agree and support this idea of having these conversations well in advance when you're clear headed and you can, you, you can, you know, sort through different options. The, the other thing that happens when you get that level of stress and grief and all of that is that you become less capable of imagining alternatives. Mm -hmm. And so you also will be less creative. You will be less in control. You will be more likely to just respond to whatever's in front of you as opposed to actually being able to take a moment and think about it. And so I think that that is so, so important. And this comment you were saying about, you know, somebody was like, oh, I didn't realize that we had spent that much money and, and all of that kind of stuff. It's fortunate that she had the money, but there are a lot of people I know who get into these situations, especially if there are arguments about what somebody wanted and it mm -hmm. wasn't clear, then it's so much easier to fall into something that you didn't plan for and that right. you maybe wouldn't have chosen if you had a little, if you had a little breath. Yeah, and, that's true. And, and then, you know, I, I saw on your Instagram feed, like one thing that really popped out at me was this one post about how guilt is the most common companion to grief. And that just really struck me. And I, I know that it's true um, from personal experience, but I'm also wondering if you could expand on that a little bit, you know, sure. especially around the this, this thing where if people don't talk about this stuff in advance, like what happens? Right. Well, guilt comes in all forms. Guilt is based on a, an individual experience. And so while there is a Webster's definition for it, I think people um, feel it different ways and experience it different ways. Um, the spouse that decides they don't want to spend a certain amount of money um, they feel guilty that they didn't do right by their loved one. The person that spent too much money feels like they, you know, that they squandered without that loved one there. Oh, you know, I took advantage. You know, if they were here, they would have really not liked that, you know? So there's that kind of guilt, financial guilt. There's also guilt over, um, you know, when somebody has a diagnosis, you know, um, should I have taken better care of them or should I made sure that they, that they ate right? Um, told them they should put the donut down or whatever. I mean, if, you know, they died of God forbid, a diabetic, um, you know, a related thing, you know, I, I, I should have fought more or I should have told them to drink less, or I should have looked back at my son because I knew he was having trouble. And cause I have holes in my wall <laughs> from, and, and that, you know, all of these things. Now, I should have, should have, should have. Yeah, shoulda, woulda, coulda, you know, and I've always lived my life that, um, and that's the ironic thing that you just brought that up is that um, I'm a voracious consumer and I'll try anything and I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything, okay, because I want rich experience unless it hurts me, 
or others. Okay. Um, and people kind of joke around about how I'm like unrestrained, but, uh, but I don't want to die with woulda, shoulda, coulda, right? Now it's unavoidable, but if you have things that you can do to reduce the amount of guilt, you know, you're going to have, then do them, do them. Right. And that doesn't mean you have to spend a certain amount of money or blow your whole savings on going to, you know, visit the home country or whatever it is. It just means to make it a priority to think about the things that you should do for somebody else's welfare, uh, well-being, whatever. And here's another thing. One of the things you can do if you take control of your own end-of-life wishes is you can continue your voice for whatever is purposeful to you. Whether it's, for me, I'll say Holocaust survivor or suicide prevention or whatever it is, it allows me to say, this is important to me, or the Love Always Project, this is important to me. I want people, somebody to talk about this, or I want some money to go, or whatever it is. Planning your end of life in advance allows you to have a legacy where you otherwise might think your life was, quote, ordinary, you know? And I have seen um, couples where um, they weren't traditional couples, right? Whether they're interracial, whether it's a lesbian couple, whether it's a gay man or whatever. And they don't talk about the fact that that is such an important, their story is so important to tell, my immigration story, whatever it is. Who's going to talk about that if you don't before you get sick or, or too elderly or something happens where you can't speak for yourself? If nothing else, planning for your end of life in advance allows you to have a voice when you won't have a voice. And I know there's probably a lot of people who are listening out there that that is a new kind of click, you know, forget my family. What about the world? Right? right. What can I do? My life can have meaning where I thought maybe it didn't really impact as much because I'm leaving, I'm bequeathing, I'm having a message said, whatever it is, you know? Uh, that's what the Patriot Guard does. You know, a lot of these veterans that I ride with that died, uh, that were went to Vietnam or, or World War II, there's still a few of them left. They were, they were 20 something years old and they're dying at 90 years old. That was a blip in their life. But think of how grand and important it was to them. And that's why the Patriot Guard exists. That's why veteran cemeteries exist. That's why military honors exist. Because that little part of life that meant so much to somebody. What about if you live a certain way and you want to make sure that it is properly recognized upon your death? These are the things that make talking about end of life in advance so important. Absolutely. The idea that you could plan not just your funeral itself, but everything around it and then, you know, how that carries forward so that your your death, your funeral, it becomes part of your legacy. Absolutely. That and that's specific, incredible. Specific mm -hmm. legacy. Absolutely. It's and I do think, you know, the idea of also being able to bring forward parts of your life that maybe happened a long time ago, but are still living inside of you and are incredibly important to you. Mm -hmm. And people who meet you later on don't connect with that part of you, but you don't want it to be forgotten. Your, so, your, your funeral is your hieroglyphic, right? <laughs> you know, it's your, it's your tracing on the wall. It's your handprint in the cave. Yeah. 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 I want to switch tactics a little bit and get really in a very practical vein. You know, we've talked a lot of um, more emotional things and I noted that one of the Love Always Project um, posts was about how 
you can actually save costs or you know that you can that you can help to control what is being spent and on what sure. by doing funeral planning. Yep. So talk to me a little bit about that, this, this very practical side. Well, there are several ways you can talk about that topic, and it is a good question. Thank you for asking. Um, the first thing is, is you can prevent emotional overspending. I'm not going to accuse my mother-in-law of that because it was a group. It was a very, my wife, I wasn't in there. It wasn't my place, but the brother and sisters uh, worked very well together with uh, my mother-in-law to plan a meaningful, and it was a very meaningful ceremony. And in retrospect, um, when she looked at the bill, she thought, wow, that's a lot. Well, that doesn't mean it was too much. It just meant she didn't, uh, she didn't know what things cost. Last time she buried somebody was her mom, and it was a long time ago. <laughs> so the prices had changed. So it's not like she didn't know what it cost, or she didn't know what it could cost or what to do. So that's one way you save money is you, you don't have the emotional overspending. The other way you have it is that you avoid any kind of conflict where people just add and add and add. Well, I want this. Well, I want that. I like that grave marker, but no, we're going to do this grave marker. And it grows and grows and grows. So there's that dynamic. The other dynamic is if you do set aside the funds and you invest them properly, if you have your own money, a lot of folks are uh, affluent enough that doesn't mean rich. They just have the money that they could take out of savings or they decide to put into a savings account. But if you put it in a money market or you invest it right and times are good, then and you say that that money is earmarked, then the interest grows. And so basically you're you're you know, you're preparing for that and you're not having to come up. So remember, expensive or controlling costs doesn't have to mean that you're buying it for less. It means you're prepared to pay what it costs in the future. OK. And again, everybody has their own definitions of what savings are. Like for me, if I see something on sale, I'm buying two of them. <laughs> you know, I, I spent the same thing it would have cost if it wasn't on sale, but I got two for the price. You know, so, but again, everybody has their own definitions of it. That's why we have to be really careful when talking about, you know, these kinds of things, especially financial stuff. The other thing is this, is this way of financing through the, the insurance product that exists um, that, uh, that, I, that I talked about ad nauseum uh, earlier, where the funeral home has a contract for the goods and services of the funeral. And the insurance company puts the money away into an insurance plan at today's price. And that insurance policy grows over time to help offset inflation. So if you are fortunate enough to live beyond the 9 to 11 years that our policies typically stay in force, if you know what I mean, people plan and they live between 9 and 11 years, mainly because we have an older average age, because people think about it when they get sick or when they have to go to, you know, go to a, a nursing home or something and they do what's called a Medicaid spend down. But if you are fortunate enough to live and you, and you, and you fund in this way, the funeral director will take whatever the proceeds are of that policy to pay for the funeral, no matter what the current cost is. So you can actually um, get a funeral. And especially if you don't pay over a long period of time with, with that product, you can pay over three or five or seven years, maybe 10, which I wouldn't recommend. But the thing is, is that if you do it right, then you're not paying, you're paying for insurance, but you're not overpaying. And then if you live 20 years or you live, you know, 15 years and their prices grow faster than your insurance policy did, then what happens is, is that, you know, you're actually paying less for the funeral at the time of need. It's like going to your Chevy dealer and saying, I want a 2029 Cadillac when it comes out, but I'm going to pay you today's price. Mm -hmm. Car dealer would say you're crazy. But that's kind of, in essence, the way our thing works, only you're not committed to the Cadillac. If 
you know what I mean? You, <laughs> it's your policy. So you, if you move or something like that, you, you'll find a funeral home who will take that contract just because they want to serve families and they think it's important for them to build a relationship with you and, and your concentric circles of people that you know in your new community. Mm -hmm. So that's, and that's the way you can save money is it just depends on how you fund it, whether you save it. And again, saving is in the mind of the person, right? Um, there's one thing to pay not retail, but there's another thing to put money away so that you don't have to come up with it. That's also right. savings. Right. So that you, or more accurately, your family doesn't have to come up with it when you die. Without a doubt. You know? And we yeah. just never know, you know, what the situation is going to be, um, you know, when the, when, you know, when, when your time comes, you know, um, mm -hmm. there's the families go through uh, highs and lows and some people will be able to afford that and some people won't. And that's a tragedy when they can't. Um, so I just want to be uh, sensitive to your time sure. and to the time of our listeners and everything. I feel like I could talk with you forever. We oh, have so many too. more things Thank to you. cover as well. Um, but uh, I just want to, you know, so in wrapping up, sure. you know, if the, is there anything that we haven't covered yet? Um, and then I've got a special question that I ask. All right. Everybody. Um, yeah, I once think we get to the end of this. Sure. I think yeah. we've covered everything really well. I just want folks to know that if you don't think you're thinking about end of life, at least in a subconscious way, every time you see a news story about somebody who passed or you see a tragic um, you know, situation happening in a community where people passed away, uh, the queen even, I mean, think about it. I mean, my whole life and my grandparents' whole life, you know, I was a single monarch, you know, that, that's unheard of. We live in such an amazing time. Uh, like her or not, you know, like the monarchy or not, it's still significant. But it does cause people to think about their own mortality. When I prearranged my funeral, I thought about, for the first time ever, my young kids without me. My mom, who died in 87, all these things came up. I almost had grief, you know, it, it comes up. So those are the things I want people, they're all, you're already in, you know, it's, it's already around you. So be, be purposeful about talking about and thinking about your end of life. Take the initiative and practice on lovealwaysproject.org, uh, love you know, or, or follow us on social media. You'll see the conversations happening. You'll see the posts. And, and hopefully, if nothing else, if you're a person who journals, journal it mm -hmm. and let the people who you trust <laughs> know where that journal is or start a new journal <laughs> so that they can look at that instead of whether you had a girlfriend while you were married to mom. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or right before you married mom. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so I have one question that I like to ask everyone okay. that is a guest here. Fire away. Um, which is thinking about your own death. What is something that you really hope is included in your obituary that you want to be remembered for? you know, something that is a little marker of your life that lets us know, you know, that this is somebody that, dang, I wish I had known them while they were alive or whatever it is that is yeah. important to you that you'd like to bring forward. Well, the one thing I hope is, is, is uh, said about me is um, I, I was, uh, despite all of the fears and anxiety and how self-deprecating I, I am about myself, um, that I was a, a brave person, that I was willing to try anything, either because I wanted to do it or someone I loved or liked said, go for it. It inspired me to do it. I want people to believe about me that I wanted to live life in a way that I would never have to say, I wish I would have, or I wish I should have, or I wish I could have. 
And I do have two that, that I will tell you. One with my son, I wish I would have turned around or I wish I would have been able to do something more. Um, and the second one is I never served in the military, even though almost everybody in my family did. I just felt like I couldn't even run laps in football, much less. <laughs> and I really, uh, authority scares me. I think I, I, I was, uh, so I, I, I couldn't deal with a drill instructor, but, but on a serious note, those are the two things that I think in my life that I, that I wish I would have, could have, should have, but that's not too bad considering I'm almost 60 and, um, and it's not just about things. It's about deeds. And, and as your life changes and as my life has changed, I have been fearless about the people around me whose beliefs are solid and unchanging. I hope I've been able to, through my experiences, tell them that, hey, it's okay to think about other things and stuff you might be uncomfortable with, whatever it is, politically, religiously, whatever, because my thing is I want to understand people. I want to understand their experience so that I can get why they feel, think, behave that they do. Not that I'm ever going to change it, but I'll be less angry or sad or mad or, or whatever. So those are the things I hope people say about me that, uh, you know, despite all the things I had some form of bravery in me. I, I love that. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. So Dean Lambert, tell us again where we can find you online and the address of the Love Always Project and whatever else sure. that um, people should follow up with you. Great. Thanks. All we need is an email address for you to join the movement. We feel like that people would have purpose not only to themselves, but to others by joining the conversation we have at lovealwaysproject.org. There's a forum that you can feel comfortable and safe that is there. It's password protected. We've got all the, it's all, you know, it's not like the dark web isn't getting smarter, but certainly we've done everything we could to make sure you're not sharing personal information or numbers or anything like that. We're on social media. So you'll find us if you search us in Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you'll see us there and just, you know, be as voyeuristic as you want in the beginning. And hopefully you'll end up participating. And uh, pretty soon, I hope our board gets together for Love Always Foundation and uh, decides exactly how we're going to fund that and what kinds of things we're going to do with uh, with the money. And that's just something we feel like is important for our our members to know that we're doing good things besides just opening up this platform that people can learn from, teach on, things like that. That's great. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. It's been great talking to you. So there you have it. Plan your funeral. Give your loved ones a guide to what you would have wanted, how to make it feel very much in line with what you value in your life, and look into funding it in advance. I haven't done this yet myself. We all have more we can do, right? So if you can't do all of this yet, I'm right there with you. But at least put it on the list, okay? for joining me today. If you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Let's work together to not make death harder than it has to be. For more about all of this, go to dyingkindness.com. Today's music is by Blue Dot Sessions, and everything else was done by me. I'm Sienna Stewart, and I'm going to die someday, but hopefully not before my trip next week to London to see live theater. Today's death reading is Mortality is My Mistress by David White.
silence, the quiet of centuries in the ancient room, and the sense of others here before us as if everyone now is waking to the same morning all the others have discovered, looking out as they did to the geese flying north or south, the Thames below feeling its way to a distant sea. And their mortality is like my mortality, a hidden lover, with him we have woken, someone we refuse to acknowledge to those outside, a secret we keep from the waking day. But today I know I will announce her and walk with her and show affection in the public room, and this declaration will be a testament to the hidden but suspected in others, an example and a surety to the unspoken, and above all a proclamation to the unfaithful who carefully bide their endless time. My declaration will be absolute, an arrival in the here and the now. Then there will be little else to do. I will have become like the madman running to see the moon in the window, the hawk I saw tracing the cliff edge above the river. I will be the man I have pursued all along and finally caught. I will be all my intuitions and all my desires, and then I will walk slowly down the steps, as if dressed in white and wade into the water for a second baptism. I will be like someone who cannot hide their love, but my joy will become ordinary and every day, and like a lover, I will find out exactly what it is like to be the happiest, the only one in creation to really understand how much I'm just a hair's breadth from dying. <laughs>